Let's pray as we come to read from God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love your word. We thank you that you are not a God who hides himself away and does not reveal himself, but you are a God who has spoken to us through the word, uh, through, the, through the word, Jesus Christ, but also through the words of the Bible which we have today. Lord, I pray as we read this word, your Holy Spirit would move powerfully in this place. You would speak, you would comfort, you would encourage, you would bring peace, you would glorify Jesus Christ in this place, we pray. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been preaching through a section of the book of Isaiah, and you will have noticed that Isaiah is a book of prophetic poetry filled with extraordinary contrasts. I hope you've seen that over the last two weeks. We preached from Isaiah chapter 24, which is a chapter all about judgment coming upon the whole earth. It's a, it's a chapter, a sombre chapter of darkness. And that's followed by what Dio preached last week in Isaiah chapter 25, where the saints have a feast on the mountainside and death is swallowed up forever. So even in those two chapters, you saw this great contrast, judgment in 24, feasting, death swallowed up forever in chapter 25. Well, as we read Isaiah 26 together, we are going to see those very same contrasts coming through over and over and over again. Let me read to you Isaiah 26, and we're going to read the whole chapter. And brilliant, the words will appear on the screen behind me. Isaiah chapter 26, verses 1 to 21. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In your path of judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favour is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. 
we have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Now, as I read that to you, maybe you've noticed that actually there are all kinds of different themes kind of pushed together into one chapter of scripture here. And because it's poetic prophecy and because it's a song, it doesn't fit into a nice logical flow. It's not, this isn't one of Paul's letters in the New Testament where you can say Paul makes a statement and then he explains his statement and then he brings his application of what the statement means. This is a prophetic poem, a prophetic song. But there are patterns and contrasts throughout the song that I've just read. And hopefully as we go through this poem together, we're going to see some of those different patterns and contrasts and begin to bring out what God says to us in Isaiah 26. And I I want to apologise to you because I'm about to preach a seven point sermon to you. I can see at least seven themes in this poetic poem and we're going to walk through those beautiful and glorious themes. So the first theme in this song is salvation. The singers of this song in verse one feel safe and secure. They shout, they cry, they sing, we have a strong city, they say at the start of this song. But the walls, the bulwarks, the defences of this city are not made from stone or from steel. They don't feel safe and secure because they have the best archers on top of the walls. No, the walls that are made of this city are the walls of salvation. Now, the Hebrew word for salvation in Isaiah 26 is the word Yeshua. I don't know whether anyone recognises that name, because many scholars believe that that is precisely the name that Jesus was called by his disciples. They called him Yeshua. Of course, Jesus' name is is the Lord of salvation. And and so the Greek word is Jesus. The Hebrew word is Yeshua or Yehoshua. And so I believe that when we read this poem as Christians, we can think of this city of security and safety and say, I feel secure because the walls of salvation about me are the walls of Christ himself. Yeshua, Jesus, is the walls of this city. For Christians, Isaiah 26 verse 1 is a verse about Jesus because the Lord, through his son Jesus, has built a city of salvation. Do you feel threatened? by either side? Do you feel like you could fall at any moment? Do you feel like the world is hemming in about you and crushing you? Come to Jesus Christ. Believe in him and he will be walls around you. Spiritually speaking, if you love Jesus, the salvation that he has won for you upon the cross is like walls enclosing around you in safety. It means you can go through anything in life. I need not fear anything. I I can be safe and secure in this city of salvation because Christ himself is the walls around me. 
He will protect me. He will keep me from harm. He will keep me from stumbling and he will deliver me into eternal life and the new heavens and the new earth. Not even death itself can harm you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, because even if you die, you go to be with Christ in eternity forever and ever. I want you to just sense that you are living in the city of salvation as a Christian and Christ himself is a wall around you. Sing this song in your heart with me. Feel the walls of Christ's salvation around you. I am eternally safe and secure in the city of the Lord's salvation. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? That's the first theme in Isaiah chapter 26. The second theme is linked very closely to it. The second theme is faith or trust. Open the gates, says verse 2. We do not need to shut the gates because we're safe and secure in the salvation that Christ brings. So open the gates. Jesus is the walls of salvation. But he also says in John 10 verse 9, doesn't Jesus say this? I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Well, I think that's what this verse is about. In verse 1, Jesus is the walls who brings us safety and eternal security. And in verse 2, he is the gate. Open the gate so that the righteous nations can come in by faith. That is how we enter into the city of salvation, isn't it? By putting our faith in Jesus. We, put, we believe in Jesus. We believe in his life, death and resurrection from the dead. And then we run in through this open gate into the city of salvation where we will dwell securely forever and ever. Can I speak to you if you are visiting this morning uh, and you're not a Christian? Enter into the gate. Enter through the gate which is Jesus Christ, into this city of salvation. Believe in Christ, trust in him and enter into this glorious city. Now, the theme of faith continues into verses three and four. And these are just wonderful verses, so helpful pastorally, verses three and four. This is what it says. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. The you in verse three is God and the him is the Christian, is you and me. So hear these words. God keeps Christians in perfect peace. That's the start of the verse. God keeps you, keeps Christians in perfect peace. God is active in this verse. He is the keeper. He is the guardian, keeping Christians in peace. I got a bit carried away in my preparation with Hebrew, I'm afraid, this week. But let me give you some more Hebrew. What's the Hebrew for perfect peace? Well, the answer is shalom, shalom. There's There's not a word for perfect, actually, in that verse. But the writer of this song, Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying, God keeps us in peace. I want to celebrate the peace. So he could write, God keeps us in shalom. But he goes, that's not enough. That's not, that, doesn't, that doesn't describe the peace that is in offer to Christians who, who fix their minds on God. I need to say more. So what word can I find to extend this glorious peace that I want to speak of? Well, I'm just going to repeat it twice. God keeps you in shalom, shalom. And the English translators go, OK, perfect peace, rather than writing peace, peace. The shalom described in the Bible is a piece of safety and completeness, welfare, freedom from war and contentment. And this verse says God 
keeps Christians in shalom, shalom. God is active in keeping us in the shalom, shalom of God. But the Christian is not passive in this verse. Don't think that you can do absolutely nothing and you will experience this perfect peace because that's not what the verse says. The Christian is also active. The Christian fixes their mind, stays their mind on God. In fact, the word for stay is almost like leaning back upon. So if you're a Christian, I want to teach you something really powerful. Take your mind and let it just fall upon God. Lean upon God. Stay upon God, fixed on God, reliant on God, resting upon God, delivered by God. Maybe this is a helpful image for you. Think of one of those trust exercises. I don't know whether you've ever done like a business day away. You do trust exercises so you're all friends and, and one person kind of falls back off a platform and everyone else has to catch them. Have you ever seen that done? Ima imagine that, this person falling backwards, completely trusting the rest of their colleagues to catch them. Well, this is what the Christian's mind ought to be like through all of life. My mind leans back, completely trusts God and this is just rests upon him and he catches us. And he catches us into the shalom, shalom of God, the perfect peace of God. It's appropriate for us to fall upon God in trust. That's what this verse is about. In fact, we can trust him forever. Not just now. We, let's, not, let's just not fall back on him now, but let's trust him forever. And again, there's repetition in this verse. So we had shalom, shalom in verse, in verse three. The forever of this verse isn't just the word forever. It's actually ad ad, which means until, until. So the, the songwriter is going, okay, we're gonna trust God until. Until when are we gonna trust God? When are we gonna stop trusting in God? It's until, I'll just put until again. So we're gonna, we're gonna trust God until, until, which the English translator says, that means forever. We're just going to keep, because until is never, any, never, isn't it? So we trust him forever, until, until. And why is it appropriate to trust God forever? Because he is the everlasting rock. This teaching isn't superficial, feel-good, self-help, jibber-jabber. This is Bible teaching that depends upon who God is. He is the everlasting rock. He is everlasting. That means he has existed before all time, before time ago began, God was Father, Son and Holy Spirit existing because he's everlasting and he will always exist for he is eternal, going on into eternity. God has always been, is right now and will always be. He is everlasting and he is the rock. He is immovable, unchangeable, a firm foundation, a safe place to stand through the storms of life, a safe place to lean back and relax. Trust God forever. Through all of life's circumstances, whatever you're going through today, let your mind fall backwards onto God. I'm lent upon him and the truth of who he is. Nothing can really harm me. I might have some struggles and some difficulties in, the life, in this life, but my eternity is secure because the everlasting rock has rescued me. He sent his son, Jesus, to die for me that I might have eternal salvation. That's the place of perfect peace. That's the place of shalom, shalom, if our minds can reach that place through all of life. So theme one is salvation. 
Theme two is trust in God. Theme three is proud people being humbled in verses five, in verses five and six. Here's the first obvious contrast of Isaiah 26. You've got this secure city, this trust in God, this everlasting rock on which we can stand. And then in verses five and six, we have the inhabitants of the height in a lofty city being humbled. It says he lays it low. He lays it low. He casts this proud people to dust. If you are in faith, you have this shalom in the city of security of salvation. If you are proud, you will be laid low even to dust. Pride or loftiness in the Bible is the arrogance of doing life without God, relying upon yourself rather than relying upon God. God's saying, I'm the everlasting rock, stand upon me and you will live eternally forever in relationship with me. Or you can choose to not stand on the everlasting rock and you'll be swept away by the waves and the storms and the winds. You'll be crushed to dust, says these verses. It's a foolish decision to do that, to lift yourselves up to loftiness and success in this life, but to know that eternally your safety is not secure. So as we reaffirm faith and trust in God and and seek this shalom, shalom, this peace that is on offer, I think we also ought to repent of pride and loftiness, of the arrogance of trying to do life without God. Sometimes we slip into that, don't we? Just confess in your heart, Lord, sometimes forget about you. Sometimes I think I can do it all in my own strength. Sometimes I think my successes belong to me rather than to you. Forgive me, Father. Forgive me, for I have sinned. Examine yourself this morning. What areas of your life are godless? If you have godless areas of your lives, then that's an area of your life where you are living a lofty, proud life. What areas of your life are prayerless? Prayer is a, an action of humility. Lord, I need you. I need your help in this situation. And, and so you're calling on God. You're saying, I can't do it in my own strength. So prayer is a humble attitude, and, and, an attitude not of having pride. So what areas of your life are godless? What areas of your life are prayerless? Confess them to God and seek forgiveness from Christ who died for you so that you might be forgiven. Theme four is desiring God and his glory. Verses 7 to 9 describe the path of the righteous life. And for me, it's almost like these lofty, proud people have been brought low and down to the ground, and therefore the walk, the way of the righteous person is level and flat. And so these hills have been brought low so that righteous people can walk towards the presence of God. You can imagine as you're singing this song, city of salvation, trusting in God, the hills and high places being brought low, and I'm walking as a righteous person, made righteous by Christ, I'm walking this level path towards this city. Maybe that's the way you want to think of the poetic license that's happening here. But I want to draw your attention to the desires of the people walking this righteous level path. End of verse 8. O Lord, your name and your remembrance are the desire of my soul. Your name, God, your remembrance are the desire of our soul. Now let me tell you about something that is sinful in me. 
I went on a church history tour of London and heard some amazing stories about what God has done in that city. And that city's done amazing things in the, in the name of God. There have been amazing preachers that have not just blessed that city, but actually blessed the world with proclaiming the goodness of God. So we went on this church history tour in London. We actually sat in St Mary Woolnoth Church, which is where John Newton was, was the rector, the pastor there. And we sung Amazing Grace in that church, the song that he wrote. It was, it was, it was really beautiful, really wonderful. And we went through all these old churches and everywhere we went, we'd look at the names of the, the pastors who'd led in these churches and, and the guy doing the talk would tell us stories of what had happened. Stories of George Whitfield and Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones. And my mind, instead of declaring God's power and goodness, instead of worshipping and saying, God, wow, you've done awesome things in this city, would you, would you do awesome things in Pharaoh? Do you know what mine, mine did? And, and this is sinful. My mind said, I wonder how Duncan Sills is going to be remembered. I wonder whether Duncan Sills' name will be on a wall one day and there'll be a tour and people will go. This is... That's where my mind was in this moment of hearing these great, amazing stories. That is a despicable, ugly, evil thought that went through my mind in that moment. That's not how the righteous people think in Isaiah 26. They're not thinking about their remembrance. They're thinking about the name of God and how he will be remembered. That's their desire. That's the desire of their souls. Not that my name would be remembered, but that his name, God's name, would be remembered and glorified. So I want to confess that sin to you all. And I, I want to ask you to join me in this prayer. Lord, may my name be completely forgotten or even mocked and ridiculed and shamed if it means the name of the Lord is remembered and glorified. That's a prayer that says God's glory, God's name, God's remembrance is the desire of our soul. Then in verse 9, the people on this path are yearning not just for God's glory, but also his presence. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Lord, I want you to be remembered. I want your name to be glorified. I, it's the desire of our soul that your name be glorified and your name be remembered. But I also want your presence. Lord, I earnestly desire your presence. My soul in the night longs for you, Lord God. Is that your reality as a Christian? Uh, is that a nice verse that you like to read? Or is that your reality as a Christian? You're longing for God's presence. At night, as you're lying in bed... You're saying, God, be with me. I love you. I love your presence. I'm, I'm desiring you, Lord God. And at all times, earnestly seeking God in all parts of your life. You say, you can't stop me being at church because you can't stop me being at life groups. You can't stop me being at prayer meetings because I know that God's presence is particularly there when the people of God are gathered together. That's what the Bible teaches. When two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, there he is. So you can't stop me being at church things because I know that the presence of God is there. I love to be in the presence of God. So I love to be with my Christian brothers and sisters and on my own. I love to be in the presence of God. I'm setting aside time. I'm saying, actually, I just love the presence of God. So I'm busy, but I'm definitely, I just want 10, 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour. I want to keep extending that time just in the presence of God. Lord, I'm meeting with you. I'm earnestly desiring you. I love you. I want your name to be remembered, but I want your presence most of all. Is that your reality? That's what I'm aiming for in my life. 
that I would just love the presence of God because I'm a righteous person walking on this glorious path that's been laid flat for me. Notice in verse 8 that it's our soul. There's a collective corporate identity in verse 8. And in verse 9, it's my soul. Individually and corporately, we love God's presence and we love God's glory. And that's what it means to walk on this righteous level path. You know, some of us, including myself in this, some of us desire sleep, TV, entertainment, food, more than we desire the presence of God in our lives and his glory. And I think there's a motto for life in these verses. His glory, his name, his remembrance, his presence. That's what I want my life to be. That's how I want to live. Theme five is judgment upon the wicked in verses 10 to 14. This is important to the singers of this song. Because if favour is shown to the wicked, it says in verse 10, then righteousness is not learnt. And if the land is corrupt, then no one can see the majesty of God. God's holiness cannot coexist with corrupt evil. And so if you love the presence of God, you you desire judgment upon the wicked because you know that that God's presence will not be in a place where there is corruptness, where there is unholiness. You'll be zealous for justice to come upon the wicked if you love the presence of God. And so they're singing about God's judgment upon the wicked. In verse 12, it's God's judgment that enables peace. You ordain peace, says the singers. If you love God's peace, you'll be zealous for justice to come upon the wicked because you know that when evil is eradicated, then there really will be the reality of perfect peace for all people for all time. So so if you love God's presence, you will be zealous for justice. If you love peace, you'll be zealous for justice. You will sing about it. Verse 12 describes lords who want to reign in the place of God. It's probably quite likely that the singer is singing particularly about people who want to invade and conquer Israel at this moment in time. But it describes lords who want to reign in the place of God. That's the great sin of humanity, isn't it? We don't want God to be our God. We want to be our own gods. We want to reign ourselves. Well, what does God's word say about people like that in verse 13? It says they will not live. They will not arise. They are visited with destruction. Entering into the city of salvation is a glorious thing. Shalom, shalom, salvation forever. Christ is my saviour. But it's also a humbling thing. And you have to say, actually, I'm not going to be my own God anymore. I'm going to make Jesus my God and I'm going to follow him. And if you don't do that, you will end in death and destruction. They are not remembered at all, these people in verse 13. And you can see the link to the previous theme. The people are singing about the remembrance of God, and then they're singing about the destruction of the wicked who are not remembered at all. For us, as Christians, as we read that, we think, well, it shouldn't matter to me that my name is glorified on earth at all. But it should matter that my name is remembered by God and my name is in the book of life. 
shouldn't matter whether our name is on the church wall in a thousand years somewhere. shouldn't matter whether anyone remembers who you are on the earth. But it definitely matters that your name is written in God's book of life. Because that means that God will remember you eternally. That you are saved, that you have placed your faith in Jesus. Now if you're a Christian, God has probably with his finger written your name in that book. Isn't that glorious to think about that? So theme five is judgment upon the wicked. Theme six is the whispered prayers of the saints. Verse 15 turns away. We're thinking about the wicked in one theme and suddenly in verse 15 it turns away and considers the nation, which is Israel. Uh, and this song, um, it talks about the nation being enlarged and going well. This song, which has so often been glorious and comforting, now hits reality really, really hard. Because the nation of Israel in Isaiah's day was disciplined, invaded and suffered terribly. And so Isaiah describes the nation with this metaphor of giving birth. We've suffered, we've gone through pain and yet no baby was born. Isn't this that's a, it's a horrible moment, that's a horrible metaphor. As a nation we've struggled, we've suffered, we've been invaded, we've been conquered, we, we've, we've experienced famine and death and we've died at the hands of the sword and yet there was, we, as a nation, we didn't see deliverance. We didn't see the world come to where it ought to be as a nation. Israel did not defeat the evil nations. And Israel did not bring salvation to the earth by declaring the goodness of God. Sometimes being a Christian is a bit like that metaphor. We work and we suffer and it feels like we give birth to nothing. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. I've worked, I've suffered, I've struggled, and it feels like there's been no fruit. Nothing's been born. Well, if that's you this morning, Isaiah finds hope in two different places in verses 16 to 19. The first place he finds hope is whispered prayers. Whispered prayers. In pain and suffering, Christians can pour out whispered prayers. Help me, Father. Be with me. Lord God, deliver me, give me strength. I'm whispering my prayers because I'm suffering and I'm struggling, but I, I know that you hear them. It doesn't matter the volume of how I'm praying, but I'm whispering to you, God, help me, please. I'm struggling, I'm, I'm suffering. Just clinging to God through trials. That is a wonderful expression of the Christian faith, is clinging to God through struggle with whispered prayers. And if you feel like you're in that place, come and get prayer at the end. There's going to be an opportunity to respond. We'd love to pray whispered prayers alongside you. Meanwhile, there's also a great hope, of course, in those verses in verse 19. Your dead shall live. God's dead shall live. Their bodies will rise. The earth will give birth to resurrected bodies. That song is describing. So the opposite of the lords who have opposed God and been proud, they shall not rise, they shall die. But all who trust in Christ will arise again and live resurrection life in eternity with God. Those dwelling in dust shall arise and sing for joy. It's another contrast in this wonderful poem which the Holy Spirit has written through Isaiah the prophet. If you're whispering prayers right now, or even if you're looking at the world and going, wow, that... That looks awful. Know that there is a resurrection to come and eternal glory and songs of joy for all who trust in Christ. Theme seven in verses 20 to 21 described closed up doors. 
Remember, this song began with the gates of the city being wide open and people entering by faith into the city. So there were open gates at the beginning of this song. But at the end of this song, there are closed up doors. And I think this contrast hits at all the varying experiences of Christian life, while also pointing to the now, not yet, of God's kingdom. There are moments as Christians where we open the doors and say, everyone come in, come hear the gospel. In fact, that's all the Christian life. We have the gates open. We want people to run in and hear the good news of Christ. We want to share life with others. But there are other moments where we need to fear the world and fear the sin in the sense of, I don't want to go there. I love God so much. I need to protect myself. I need to hem myself in. I don't want to, I don't want to fall under the wrath of God. So I need to close up the doors. Do you see? Christians ought to have open gates and shut doors in a sense. I know it sounds contradictory, but this is the, what the poem is drawing us into the Christian life is like a shelter with all the doors and windows slammed shut when we flee the wrath and judgment of God and we enter into that house and slam shut the doors and the windows by faith in Christ Christ is is like a, a cave of shelter when the rain pours and the thunder and lightning happen and we're caught in it and, and the wrath, that's like the wrath of God and we run to a cave and we take shelter in Christ and we, I don't know, we put up, we slam shut, I don't know what you can slam shut in a cave, but you slam shut a door and protect yourself from what's outside. That's the Christian life. And at the same time, the Christian life is open the gates, call to your friends and family and neighbours and people around you that they might trust in Christ and enter in by faith to the city of salvation. There's also a sense here of looking to the future and experiencing the judgment to come. So the city of salvation in its realist sense will, will be real to us in the new heavens and the new earth. It's something to come. We will live in this city together with all the Christians in just pure joy. But Isaiah is anticipating that some Christians will, will have to be shut away in the judgment that's going on around them. There's judgment coming upon the earth and therefore they shut the doors and, and hide away as the judgment falls. So as I draw to a close, I think this song brings us a beautiful, multifaceted collage of Christian truth. There's a stark contrast between the saints and the judged in this song. The saints, that's Christian believers, that's you and me, enter a city of salvation by faith and trust. They experience shalom shalom or perfect peace when they stay their mind, lean their mind on God and trust him forever. The saints long for God's glory and for his presence. They may suffer between now and the end of time, or between now and the end of your life. But we whisper prayers and have the hope of resurrection. And they shut themselves up in protection of Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus, from the judgment of God to come, knowing that they are safe and secure. Meanwhile, the judged are brought low and trampled for their pride. They are ashamed. They oppose God. They want to be their own gods. They have no hope of resurrection and they will die and go to dust. For they do not shut themselves up away from the wrath of God, but are punished by that wrath. Well, I hope that every person in this room would be in the saints column.
and would know peace and hope and joy looking at that glorious list of things which are true for you. If you're worried that you're not in that column, please do come and speak to us. We would love to pray for you. Put your faith in trust. Uh, put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing this morning. But let's just, let's just re-receive all those things that are true of you. If you are a Christian, this is true of you. You are in a city of salvation, hemmed in by the walls of Jesus Christ, Yeshua. You have entered into that city by faith and trust. And you can trust God, the everlasting rock, forever and ever. And when your mind is in that right place of trusting in God, leaning back against God, you will experience the shalom, shalom of God, the perfect peace of God. And that means that you can go through the challenges and storms and difficulties of this life, still experiencing peace because of who God is. Whisper your prayers to God at times when you need to, but long for God's glory and his presence through every moment of your life. Knowing that when judgment does fall upon the earth, you are shut up in a house, protected with the doors and windows shut. God will not harm you in judgment. You might go through discipline because God disciplines his children whom he loves. So you might have challenges and trials, but God does not punish in judgment his children, the saints who have believed in Christ. And that is a glorious, wonderful truth.